crazy things can happen as the result of fulfillments. There are ether transfer hooks. This like seaport being inflexible around token mints or just wanting to do things other than move tokens from A to B. And this limitation around how much protection you could get with a zone or how expressive you could be with a zone. Those are the two big takeaways that we had when we went on to design seaport. Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. MEV Protocol. Maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH exclusively on MEV.io and Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to mantis.app. That's M-A-N-T-I-S dot A-double-P. And Fastlane Labs, the only MEV and intent-centric team that has a daily deodorant application rate of over 68%. GM, GM, everyone. My name's Tagachi, the host of Scraping Bits. Today I'm with Emo.Eve. How's it going, friend? GM. It's going not too bad. <laughs> Can't complain. GM, GM. <laughs> I got to be careful saying that to the normies in my life because I kind of greet everyone like that at work or whatever. Oh, really? And so I probably have said it to my normal friends and they have no idea what I'm saying. No. <laughs> <laughs> What's a GM? Just for some context, for the people that don't know who you are, who are you and what do you do? I am Imaradith James. Either's fine if you ever meet me, but I don't look like Mike Punk or whatever my current PFP is. Lately, I've been wearing a lot of Hawaiian shirts, so I don't know if that's really the emo vibe. I am a protocol engineer at OpenSea. I work on lots of fun smart contract stuff, big one being Seaport and various Seaport periphery. Been at OpenSea for coming up on two years in a month or two but doing full-time smart contract stuff since the seaport push like a year and a third ago or so yeah got you and seaport is the decentralized version of the open sea really isn't it kind of i have a lot of hot takes about seaport we're a marketplace it's our marketplace protocol i think it's a lot more than a marketplace especially because it's very unopinionated in about how its orders work everyone's big on intents these days so it could be an intent protocol if that's what you want. Got you, yeah. And just before we go into this rabbit hole, where did you start and how did you get to the point of where you are now at Seaport? Yeah, crypto has always been in the periphery for me. I had the friend in high school who was, you know, using Silk Road. He's like, you got to oh. get Bitcoin, <laughs> man, and, and buy these illicit substances. And I was like, yeah, I'm good, man. That sounds fun for you, but I'm okay. It was fairly new. I don't know when Silk Road spun up relative to Bitcoin, but he was very enthusiastic about it. It was like sophomore year of high school, and he was like, you got to get a hardware wallet, man. I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) My brother was actually really into it too, which I didn't realize until later because we never talked about it, but he was mining Bitcoin before there were pools even. It's just solo GPU miners. You didn't notice all the little miners in his room? He kept his door shut most of the time, so I guess not. (laughs) But yeah, he did not hodl, as they say. So he had some in Mount Gox, but you know, Mm -hmm. you know where that went. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's always been on the periphery. It's always been something I'm interested in, but it didn't really click for me until NFTs, I guess. That was when it went from being like, oh, this is interesting to being like, oh, this can have a use case, this idea of both decentralized permissionless currency and decentralized permissionless things to buy with our currency started to make sense, especially in 
digital world where we buy all sorts of digital things and there's a lot of permission centralized infrastructure that is kind of rough, you know, cutting out the middleman. So when that started taking off, interested in places like OpenSea, my friend was looking for a job at the time. So I was like, dude, you should apply to OpenSea. So he actually got the job because I told him to apply. And then like six months later, he referred me and I joined. Oh, uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of circular. We still work together. Shout out, Alexander. Shout out, Alexander. We've known each other since, he says fourth grade. I think it was like sixth grade. So a very long time. A very, very long time. And were you doing like software before all this stuff? Uh... Yeah, I was a software engineer at Pandora, actually. The music internet radio service. That was very fun. It was not terribly challenging or stimulating. And so, you know, I was spending all my time learning about solidity and smart contracts and stuff. And so I was like... Maybe I should consider this as my job. And so I made the jump and I work a lot harder now, which is good and bad. You know, it's good to be stimulated by your work and not totally bored every day. But I do miss waking up at 10, starting work at 11, being done by three. That was very nice. Mm. What was the onboarding like at OpenSea? So I joined as a totally different role. I joined as a partner engineer. It's many things, some of which glorified customer support. My idea of joining was that I'm still learning about this space. I want to see what the creators are doing, what builders are building, and learn enough about it where I can have opinions about it and help people and help OpenSea adapt and serve these people. And maybe down the line, I'll pick up Solidity to the point where I'm competent and then go on. And maybe after a year, I'll like leave OpenSea so I can go become a real smart contract developer because I didn't... At the time, there weren't really smart contract developers at OpenSea, like Alex and Devin and a couple folks on the team. They like hacked together some smart contracts for really early stuff, the, the initial somewhat controversial shared storefront NFTs. But, you know, it wasn't something that they were fully invested in at the time, just because they were super small. Beginning of 2021, they were seven people. When my friend joined, he was employee like 12. And when I joined, I was like 40-ish. Oh, yeah, massive. Yeah, scaled very quickly. Uh, a lot of growing pains. So yeah, that was my plan. Maybe I'll get to a point where I can go be a real Solidity dev. But eventually, it was me and Karthik. We were both partner engineers, which is very funny because it's a very weird role. But you know, we cared a lot about what people were building. And we tried very hard to adapt, to get OpenSea to, to accommodate what people were building to, I think I implemented the on-chain metadata pipeline stuff. That's pretty cool. You know, supporting on-chain data URIs. Very cool. If it doesn't work, I'm sorry. I haven't touched that code in a while. <laughs> but yeah, so Karthik at Slope, he's a manifold now, head of their engineering. He's incredible. So we were in a good position to like understand what was going on at the blockchain level and what people were building. And so we kind of transitioned away from partner engineering to like Web3 ecosystem engineering. And then after we acquired Dharma and Zero Age hatched this maniacal plan to make a new marketplace protocol, our team kind of got folded into this new protocol team. And by that point, I had done some smart contracts for like partners or like helped people integrate with OpenSea at the smart contract level. I was doing some smart contract stuff, but then when push came to shove with Seaport V1, V1.1, I was big into Foundry and Zero Age was very excited about Foundry and fuzz testing, so I built out the whole Foundry test suite for Seaport, which was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And what does that entail, like that custom suite for Seaport? 
So it entailed a lot of figuring out what the hell was going on. The reason I was able to pick up on the low level of Solidity or just the EVM in general, really, is probably just getting thrust headfirst into that, writing tests for code that is brand new and like no one really understands aside from this mad genius. It was very difficult. So living in the Foundry debugger for a few weeks, figuring out why I can't fill this order. Like, is it a bug or is it? It was always just me not knowing what I was doing. But Boundary Debugger, excellent way to learn the really low level of the EVN and see what's actually happening when you compile your Solidity code. Foundry was also pretty new at the time. This is like April, May, and I think it launched December, so it was four or five months old. We were definitely the biggest project to do both Hardhat and Foundry side by side. It was very cool that the Foundry folks, Paradigm folks, liked it. Uh, they might still link to it as an example of like Foundry Hardhat living side by side. It was very cool. It was very fun. A lot of stack too deep issues that <laughs> that's not too figured fun. out how to deal with eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the first couple of weeks was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Uh, am I going to let everybody down? Didn't pan out that way, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I feel the same way. I never really work in teams. And when I go into teams, I'm like, well, for me, I just like work so much more than what I'm meant to because I feel this obligation of I don't produce ton of results i'm gonna feel bad so it makes me work more than what i'm actually meant to and then i don't know that's bad in itself in some ways i guess it's also like benefits in that if i do work for myself then i'm obsessing over work producing results for myself but working in such a massive team and having such a critical role how do you really process that and you know lead in that sense you may not be a lead for example but you still are contributing a lot, right? Like the work you do matters. It's not like if you're in Google and you don't do work, it doesn't really matter because, you know, there's so many people doing it. But since it is a very core thing, what's the mentality that you bring working in such massive teams? What does that really feel like? Because I think a lot of people don't even do that. I personally haven't worked in a massive team, so I don't even know what it's like. Yeah. So our core protocol ecosystem team, I guess it is kind of a big team by corporate standards, question mark. There's like 10-ish of us, but we're pretty spread out in what we handle because we're sort of the blockchain level experts at the company. And so like if trusted safety is trying to investigate spam or mitigate spam or like gaming phishing stuff they'll pull one or two of us away if we need some periphery like e-collector smart contract wallet we'll do that too so we're kind of disjointed but we are kind of a big team so we are kind of like very neatly siloed which is nice it's buffered around us but we work with a lot of other teams and i think starting to realize that people really value our input on things and so we can steer discussions if we want to that's definitely a big change coming from a big company like pandora where like you know, if I wanted to learn something, it was even hard to get put on a project. I could like learn something new rather than do something over and over, normal and mundane and expected of me. Yeah. And so just having the confidence to like speak up and advocate for things was a change because like before it's like, eh, it doesn't really matter what I think. But now it kind of does, which is kind of nice, but also there's responsibility there. I don't want to impede my coworkers, you know, on other teams where if I'm like, hey, I think this product idea is not aligned with the space or like maybe I think we should do this in a better way or like these comms are really reflect us. You know, that's not my job. I'm a yeah. protocol engineer. I respect my coworkers, but it's hard to know when you should stay in your lane or, you know, really advocate for stuff. But I think, I think we've gotten to a point where folks 
we've been right about enough stuff or excited about enough cool things far enough in advance where it's easier to advocate for cool stuff, which is exciting. For sure, yeah. And obviously, when when you're in these discussions with other teams and trying to do integrations and whatnot and just discussing ideas, what does it take to really build a large-scale protocol? First of all, that, that can scale, but also is secure and knowing what features to add and why you should add them, I guess, was the whole process of going from nothing to something in such a large architecture. So the initial seaport design was all zero edge mad scientist that he is that wasn't really work there was no protocol team at that point so he was really the protocol with team. <laughs> pretty much you know you know uh the dharma the dharma acquisition was a pretty 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 good business move i guess uh mm-hmm. so you know he just emerged from the shadows one day with this fully fleshed idea about seaport and the rough implementation and it was really well designed just from the get-go it's totally designed to be agnostic about whatever it is that you're doing um it's totally unowned it's permissionless anyone can use it for anything and that's totally by design it's built in such a way that's supposed to be like MEV friendly, searcher friendly, because you can do all kinds of crazy things with orders. Like you can fulfill multiple different orders and you can match the, we we call them offer and consideration items for various reasons. You can match these items across orders and like use multiple items from different orders to fulfill requirements for other orders. And like you can do that atomically without yourself having to offer anything and then take any leftover money that's on the table after doing really centered around flexible fulfillments, gas efficient fulfillments. Like yep. You can specify exactly which tokens go where in what order, which is really cool. Just super well thought out and designed. So that was the V1 1.1 thing. Working with it, there's this concept of zones. Zones are sort of like an extra security feature in Seaport. Over time, we we built, so it was also the design lead for C-Drop, which is like our primary sale offering. V1 of C-Drop, we, Zeraj and I tried to figure out how to get it to work with the first version of Seaport, and we realized that it wasn't flexible enough to do it without getting really ugly and like how you would have to hack together a token contract that worked with Seaport in a gas-efficient ERC-721A. The whole point is that you mint a bunch and then you get basically a bunch of tokens for the gas cost of one token, whereas Seaport transfers individual tokens, so it wasn't going to work in that way. That was one limitation we found a few months after launch. Another thing is with zones, this security concept, they're kind of like looks on orders to see if they're still valid. Working with that, I identified an issue we may have run in we were maybe going to run into with a partner and i started designing a zone around it and realized eventually that the way seaport was set up wasn't like friendly to to actually doing expressive the takeaway from zones is that like the intent mechanism of seaport where you say a zone can do anything you want. It can act on chain state. It can read any state or whatever. So like if you say, I want the outcome of this order to be this chain state, that's what a zone can do. Um, we realized there were some limitations there because they all executed before the actual fulfillments happen. And so, you know, crazy things can happen as the result of fulfillments. There are, you know, ether transfer hooks. There are ERC-1155 transfer hooks that can like 
do things and change state in a way that might not satisfy the requirements of the zone. And so those two big takeaways, this like seaport being inflexible around token mints or just wanting to do things other than move tokens from A to B, and this limitation around how much protection you could get with a zone or how expressive you could be with a zone. Those are the two big takeaways that we used or that we had when we went on to design Seaport 1.2, which eventually became 1.5 because of a couple issues. But yeah. you know, <laughs> I think I think the the consideration of MEV is very important because that's kind of how that's where majority of the volume is. Right, there's a lot of volume for MEV, and also the aspect of decide you want something to run, you know, automatically on chain, fully on chain, you would need you know, another actor to really be incentivized to trigger something to update a state, for example, or, you know, and, you know, I think a lot of people miss out on this, on this opportunity, because that's the whole premise of decentralization is is incentivizing, you know, each other to really do something. And if you're consciously thinking of this, then you can really run something fully automatic on chain, because there's always going to be some incentive, right? And another thing, of course, is thinking in terms of, you know, security. A lot of developers do not think about the security of their protocol or the possibilities of what can happen. For example, when you're talking about the zones, obviously it's not in the right order and that's a, it's a massive flaw in that regard. It could potentially bring in like re-engine And, you know, when someone's developing, they're not really thinking of all these potential attack vectors. They're not threat modeling. They just want an MVP, right? Something that can actually work. And so what we see more often than not is, you know, someone creates DAO, some on-chain project, and then they don't consider the security implications and then they get hacked. And there goes, let's say, 20K or whatever, because they just started and then they can't actually do anything because they, well, to pursue that doesn't make sense. They have a net negative, right? Um, And then they have to restart. (laughs) And then eventually they get into security and then, you know, they get to a point where they realize the importance of it and actually build a protocol. In order to prevent all that, that's kind of, you got to think of that mindset, but without the experience, you can't really think of that. So obviously that goes into the grand architecture of something. And especially if you're building something massive, then it's, there's a lot to consider. <laughs> so I guess comes the question of how do you actually test for all these edge cases and coverage, branch coverage, et cetera, how do you make sure you're doing it as efficiently as possible? Yeah. So that's actually kind of an interesting question, especially with regards to Seaport. So in this Seaport repository, there's actually two versions of Seaport. There's the actual version that's deployed to the chain, and then there's a reference version, which doesn't use any assembly at all. And it's actually, it was, it was very hard for Ben and our team to do certain things that Seaport does without using any assembly. But I guess... The original re- part of the original reason was obviously we want a version that humans, mere mortals, can read that that aren't zero age or or, or Dylan helped out a lot with with Seaport as well. Some really awesome, very low level stuff from him. And the other reason is that I guess okay, this I this is kind of embarrassing, but like I legitimately do not know how to use Hard Hat. I only use Foundry. I guess the Hard Hat coverage can't do assembly at all or at least it couldn't at the time. And so our coverage reporting for V1 
was all on this reference branch, you know, and we, we, part of, part of the fuzz suite that I wrote was, it was a differential fuzz test suite, which meant that it runs the same exact test against both the optimized version and the reference version to ensure that the same stuff is happening on both contracts. And so we had, initially we had this, this coverage by way of this reference version, and we had assurance that the same stuff was happening on both branches by running the exact same test suite on both contracts, which actually was was very difficult to do back then because there was no state snapshotting. Uh, uh, so I had no. to get very, very clever with it. But uh, doing like any unit tests or was it mostly just fuzzing them? So there were some, there were some unit tests um, in the foundry part. Most of the unit tests were um, in hard hat at that point. Right. Okay. Yeah. Doing like yeah. a mono repo of just hard hat and foundry does not sound yeah. like a, a fun time. Well, I I only had to worry about the foundry stuff, which was a huge pain. But I would take it over figuring out JavaScript dependencies any day. Uh, oh, 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 yeah! Don't <laughs> even get me started on JavaScript. Oh man, yeah. Do JavaScript, not... TypeScript are fine, but when I'm writing a smart contract, I don't want to deal with all that. Yeah, I I'm not a big fan. I I really love the idea of using the same language for testing, and you know, I didn't know JavaScript in depth, so. It just didn't make sense for me to, you know, use all these web-free, like, front-end packages when I'm doing a back-end, a big number and all that stuff. I was like, yo, why can't I just type the number? Yeah, it's it's funny because I do this less frequently. I would just, you know, fire off some some shit posts about, like, oh, Foundry's better than Hardhat. And people would, like, respond to me being like, you should really check out Seaport, man. Like, it's, it's a great example of Hardhat and Foundry living side by side yeah. which is very funny because i'm the guy that did that <laughs> yeah you should check out seaport man yeah, wait it's I, I, I did little known port. protocol yeah um I, I guess like the you guys chose to use like inline assembly as well i guess why didn't you guys use huff or you know just like yule in, in general why did you just go inline assembly with huff was probably pretty new and underdeveloped at the time there's also a lot that you do get from solidity which is very nice there's a lot that's unoptimized about the way that Solidity does some things. For example, one of the big bytecode savings and gas savings and the newest version of Seaport is Dylan, one of the co-authors, he wrote this library that he calls ABI-Liddy. It's ability, but ABI-Liddy. I think it's a great pun. Um, and what that does is he uses the Solsi-typed AST library, the TypeScript abstract syntax tree library, to manually decode structs from call data. So, so it's this library that I haven't actually used it myself. There's just a script that runs and it generates all the seaport stuff. Um, but it it uses the abstract syntax tree library to construct a whole suite of library functions that just instead of relying on solidity like when you do order parameters call data order parameters in the function signature when you do that and like the struct is named behind the scenes solidity automatically does its own call data decoding of that struct or like validation on that struct or when you copy it to memory it does it its own way and apparently that can be fairly inefficient and have a ton of bytecode overhead and so dylan's library does that 
automatically. So actually in the newest version of C port, all of the structs that all the struct arguments are unnamed. It'll just say order parameters call data and then like low level will like go into the call data and validate it and then copy it to memory, which is kind of insane to think about. Um, so that's that's an example of solidity being bad, but uh, or not bad, but you know that's an example where can have speed bumps. But there are a lot of nice things um, about solidity. You know, sometimes you do want checked math. Sometimes you do want to just index a call data array or a memory array without doing the pointer math yourself. You know, um, it's a lot safer. Of course, we take the training wheels off a lot in Seaport. But uh, it's very nice to have those training wheels in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Productionizing, you know, custom bytecode is very difficult. And another massive factor in, in that sense is also who's going to order custom bytecode, right? It's a very, first of all, it's a very niche programming skill set to even write it. Then you're introducing this other factor of can someone identify bugs within it? which is, you know, even more niche. And the only way you're going to get that is if someone's super good and then imagine the cost of that, right? Because it's so niche. Who else are you going to go to if you've only found one person? <laughs> so, I mean, shout out to myself because I can do that. But um, so shameless plug. But yeah, I mean, like how many people have really done that though? And then it comes to a point where you also have maintainers of it as well. And then, you know, it's hard to find developers in the first place. So you can't do that. But yeah, the encoder is quite, uh, I mean, decoder is quite interesting because I've done a, a call data decoder as well. And it is quite, it is somewhat difficult, but if you know what you're doing, then it's somewhat easy. But from someone that doesn't know what, what it's really doing, it's it seems like magic, right? <laughs> um, I mean, you know, the call data you say from, you know, all those pointless zeros, right? If you can just find what you need, extract that, then that's all that's all that matters right you don't need all that padding as a normal solidity where you know you have a let's say a struct with you know four addresses each address you're using 20 bytes but you're using you're not using 12 bytes so let's say you have 12 times four and then that's how many bytes are being unused and so it's redundant if you can withdraw that extract it then there you go and obviously that saves the user money in fees and so they can spend it on something else, maybe another transaction, right? But ultimately, it's a good it's a good way to kind of promote yourself and be better than the competition. Because I'm sure nobody else is really optimizing cold data or this level of just inline assembly searchers. But only MEV searchers. <laughs> only yeah. <laughs> There's no real reason for a protocol, especially if you're a startup, right? And you know, you're trying to get to MVP. I mean, all the resources are in solidity. There's if you go to any audit company, they're all on solidity. Nobody does bytecode because, you know, first of all, very niche. There's no point. The market's too small. But also, solidity is just easier to write. You know, you can do tests, understand it. You can hire anyone. You don't have to go searching and find, like, a very deep network of, you know, elites <laughs> to try and hire them. And then, first of all, having the money to be able to hire them as well is just, it's just a very unrealistic scenario and so solidity is like the default right so i guess you know working with dylan and you know the whole team what do you really what are the kind of things that you've kind of learned on this two-year journey um being at OpenSea uh, that you've 
guess learned over yeah that have really stuck with you let's see i've learned that i like esoteric problems of a certain flavor um i've learned that the evm is really very interesting um partly because of how limited it is yeah i think that's a beauty yeah you can yeah trying to solve problems within constraints yeah absolutely and i feel like it's it's just convoluted enough where for me at least it's i'm able to to like grasp it or grasp hopefully most if not all of the intricacies if i'm good at my job hopefully grasp all of it and work in this weird like almost like a set of toy problems it's just convoluted enough where like i feel like i as a person can grasp it and reason about it in a in a way that makes me decent too good at my job i've also learned just zero age is the man man dylan's the man they're fucking brilliant it's awesome working with really people who are so smart and just not even like smart they're they're brilliant but they're just clever you know like who would have thought that you know we're running up against the bytecode limit of the evm with seaport you know what can we do to shave down on it let's do completely custom call data decoding and that saves like a few hundred gas uh, yeah incredible yeah and like in truly the grand, unhit yeah yeah for real and i think it's most notable because you know so many people are using it if it was just any other protocol it wouldn't really be worth it right but it does add up and i think you guys did do some statistics on this as well on the amount of gas saved and then kind of actual dollars it was was saved and it was a fair bit it was a loss yeah <laughs> yeah I think it was like especially a couple... compared to wyvern yeah yeah i don't know how much it was was it like a couple hundred grand like 300 grand or something i can't remember it was a dog it was that sounds right i don't remember when that was from probably just a few months after seaport so maybe even more it was then. like the difference between the original open sea and then seaport of the, the amount yeah. saved because yeah, obviously... wyvern was yeah wasn't optimized it, it served its purpose for a while, but I'm glad we're moved beyond it. Yeah, I mean, like something of that that scale would obviously bring so many fees of all the unoptimizations. I mean, like something like Seaport or something like OpenSea is really an off-chain thing, but I mean, you got to execute it somehow, and then you know you, you build like these things that then go off-chain, and then the off-chain executes it, so it's like a lot of convoluted stuff. But then now in C4, you only have the necessities, right? Um, and then you just hyper-optimize for that. And then now any, anybody can use it. And it's also for, yeah, like even the game theory for the searches where you can, you know, you can do atomic arbitrage within an NFT platform and then even do cross ones, right? Like going from OpenCU to Pseudos, the whole kind of shebang. It really plays into the ecosystem. And, you know, when you hear about MEV with like this, it's not a necessarily a bad thing for these people because their orders are getting filled. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really interesting with the Uniswap X launch. It's very similar. Yeah. They, yeah. they give Seaport a shout out in the white paper about you know off chain signed orders and specifically like they have the Dutch oxygen reactor, which is you know sort of the intent ish protocol where you say I want to swap this token for x amount of token and where x is variable and so as soon as it's profitable for an mev searcher to fill it they fill it and the user doesn't pay any gas and it's an optimal execution from the 
user's standpoint, because if an MBV searcher waited until it was more profitable for them, someone else would have come and taken it. We've been thinking about that a lot. We have this protocol that still in like a toy stage that we're very excited about building out more, at least I am. We hired Ryan on our team because he he came and talked to Karthik, our old manager, about uh, he thought it'd be really cool if Seaport had a decentralized peer-to-peer order book um, for stuff exactly like this. And was like, that's awesome. Build that now. And, uh, and, uh, you know, that was, that was last, that was a year ago. That was last summer. And so it's really cool to see that. Like, I know, I know Uniswap has been working on this for a long time. So it's really cool to see those parallel, you know, ideas come to the forefront at the same time. It's very cool. Very validating. Very mm. exciting. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. All, all new innovations. CPO was just a massive, just like groundbreaking innovation in that sense and you know it sparks all these other people trying to do the same thing any any new kind of technology from a reputable you know source is you know bound to just like shift the paradigm into you know a new kind of space yet you see that with uniswap with the uniswap x i'm i'm actually curious to see how this is going to happen from you know a fully decentralized platform to now centralized kind of order book right so it's it'll be interesting and they claim to get rid of mevinit uh so they do all the arbitrages in when it's executed so that that's actually gonna be super interesting but obviously like with anything it takes a while to adopt especially with complexity you, you see everyone's still using v2 right but some people use v3 but nobody understands it fully well a small I guess minority understand it fully, but the majority don't because it's quite complex. <laughs> and I think the same is with V4, although, you know, it's quite abstract if you think of, okay, everything's on one contract, but from what I've heard, it's still kind of like the same level of complexity as V3, whereas V2 is just simple, right? Anybody can learn it, pick it up, integrate it, and people still use it, which is, you know, interesting despite all the efficiencies of v3 but again it's just comes down to complexity and how easy can someone understand it and start using it right so i think that comes to also documentation how do you actually write good documentation for such a a massive project right because like even i sometimes struggle i'm like hmm okay let me write this i come back to it later i'm like why did i write this how do i even keep track of everything right there's so much to keep track of so Obviously, documentation yeah, uh, is super important. Let me know when you figure it out. I'm certainly not great at it. Uh, that's something that I talk with Zero Age a lot about is that Seaport is, like I said at the beginning, you know, it's not a marketplace protocol. I don't know. I see it as like a token settlement layer. And then with the newest version of Seaport, we have this concept of contract off, which are like reactive smart contract offerers that can dynamically offer up tokens in exchange for other tokens and do things behind the scenes and with the newer version of zones which the zone check happens after execution now and it's also a stateful call so it can you know manage its own state or state elsewhere it's now there's there's this concept of andrew from astaria put it this way it's like the settlement layer for seaport apps which is a weird nebulous statement but like astaria's built on top of Seaport. It's an NFT lending protocol that uses 
zones to manage positions and liquidate things. I, I haven't looked completely at it, but I know it works that way on a high level. And it's very exciting because I think I think they're really the the first folks to you know build something on top of Seaport and see it as this platform mm. for building stuff on top of it. But they're all brilliant, and you know I've reached out to Zero Age and me personally to ask questions or in some cases find bugs. <laughs> so it's it's very hard. Zero Age and I talk about how we can make it easier to build Seaport apps, but also we need to answer the question of what is a seaport app and how do we communicate what's possible and how do we make it as ergonomic as possible one of the things just just real quick is that one of the things for the newest version of seaport is that sort of a lot just to help writing tests for the new version of seaport i built out this library of solidity helpers that just make it really easy to like create structs or like auto populate structs or create the concept of fulfillments, when and where tokens are sent in the actual execution phase of Seaport. And so I've been working a lot on just libraries that to help interfacing with Seaport. Um, and I think that's a lot of it, but there's still a lot of documentation to write, but it, it's a problem both of documentation and ergonomics. I think we're getting to a place where it's starting to be ergonomic to work with Seaport, but we still need to actually invest a lot more in showing what exactly is possible and how to build these things and in a friendly way yeah a common thing i i face when building a, a large architecture is how do i make it easy to read for someone else or and i consider myself as someone else when i visit in the future or if i take a couple of days off and i want to come back to it all that context back into my brain into my so-called ram if i if i can't do that in a quick manner than I'm spending, you know, unnecessary time trying to get the context again, especially if I'm jumping between multiple projects, right? So you're doing something full time and then doing it as a side gig. You don't want to spend the only time you have for your side gig trying to remember where you were at before. And I think that's where documentation comes in, like inline comments as well, explaining stuff. But I think getting the overall architecture down, understanding what's possible, what where you at and how can i improve this is the main thing and you know if someone's trying to build on top of it as well then they also need that otherwise it's just gonna become not fun and obviously people do this I, i've dealt with like projects that you know you want to integrate with but it's they haven't verified the this code on a on chain so you don't actually know what's happening and there's actually a difference between the bytecode on chain and the one they published publicly on github and so it's like okay what do I do now? And if the, especially if the team isn't communicating as well, right? You, you want it to be a decentralized platform where someone can actually understand what's happening. Because then anybody, cause like anybody can build on top of anything, really. It's just like, do they understand the possibilities and limitations of that thing that they're building on top of? But yeah, I think that's just a, a general software kind of question. It's like, okay, how do you build good documentation? How do you convey it to someone that's coming in from nothing? totally yeah it's very it's difficult and it's it's something where we talk about a lot and are actively trying to work on mm -hmm. also on top of the, on, on that note obviously you know you're working with some of the best in the industry and you can identify what makes them the best right so in your opinion what differentiates someone that's mediocre or intermediate into or compared to a leader or an elite in that kind of field 
of protocol development? I can speak to it from my experience, if I may deign to declare myself potentially intermediate to advanced. And maybe this is specifically my line of work, working with Seaport and really optimized stuff. But for me, the big shift came when I stopped thinking about writing Solidity, the programming language, and when I started thinking about it on the EVM level. Because Solidity has a lot of nice abstractions that help you start writing code, but it's doing things under the hood that are very unique to the EVM and how the EVM works. And if you want to understand how to write safe code, or if you want to understand the drop mix, downsides, pros and cons of doing something a certain way, you need to understand what the actual virtual machine is doing under the hood, like understanding, re-understanding where re-entrancy can happen and what are the consequences and things like that. So when I write Solidity, it's also sort of understanding the Solidity compiler. I probably would be much less useful in Viper just because I haven't dove into it really. You know, if I know Solidity is going to do something weird or not what I expect or inefficient in some way, just from knowing what bytecode the compiler outputs, you know, I'll write something differently a certain way. But I think the big thing is understanding what the actual EVM is doing. That really helps you write safer code because you understand what the implications of what you're writing actually are. Yeah, I agree. Being able to understand the bare bones of what you're writing, it definitely allows you to understand the higher up abstractions for example, if you understand the RPC calls being involved in Foundry, you know actually what's happening under the hood of the abstractions of the emulators, etc. how the scripts are ran, how you deploy. Another great example actually is if you don't actually know how to optimize, right? It's, it's because you don't have a great underlying understanding of how, let's say, memory and storage works. If you're putting a variable from storage into memory, then what you're really doing is doing an S-load which, you know, is X amount of gas. And then you're putting it into memory, which is an M store, which is another X amount of gas. And then you're going to use the M store. And let's say you don't, you only use the M load once, right? Then there was no point in that memory, right? You should have just S loaded because then you're skipping the unnecessary redundant memory storage and then access. So you're just using storage directly because you're not using it multiple times. This happens quite often when you think about gas optimization well, the episode of Harrison I did before, he mentioned that, you know, in for loops, if you're not caching it and you just continuously load from storage, it's going to add up and it can be quite expensive, especially if it's using different storage slots each time with like a, an iterator. So yeah, it definitely comes down to your fundamental understanding of something. And to, to be good at anything, right, you've got to go to the bare bones, what's happening. For example, in AI, you should learn math and all that stuff if you want to build the models. But obviously you can use it at a higher level, but you're not going to be as technically sound as if you learned everything at the lower level slash the prerequisites, fundamentals, etc. You can use anything at the higher level, right? But you, you'll never be as, you'll never be a master. And if you want to become that level, you've got to think of what the leaders in the space are doing. Do you really think they don't know how to write bytecode or at least don't even understand how to you know, write something like that? So you've got to kind of think of it from that perspective as well. A, a true master would know the whole stack to some degree of understanding. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to pave new ground, at least 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it just comes down to experience and there's no better teacher than experience, right? Like you can just do theoretical all the time, but it's what you can actually do and what you can implement. What can you actually provide? If you can just give advice, then really maybe you should just be a consultancy. But at that point, if you've never done it, your consultancy or advising isn't actually sound as well because <laughs> you've got to do it. So I think that all kind of like tumbles down into the fundamentals and really understand it to be good at the abstracts higher ups or even anything revolving around it because yeah i think it all interconnects in evm anyway you, you see everything in different areas yeah so what does your day-to-day -day look like as a protocol engineer at seaport let's see it depends you know earlier this year it was all seaport all the time it was writing new tests it was writing out that new library for ergonomics, both in test writing and order validation, fulfillment generation. Lately, it's been a mix of like more product-oriented stuff. A lot of people ask me for advice or context on stuff. So some meetings, which is not as fun as writing bytecode or can be, depending on the vibe. But uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about Seaport, even if we're not doing a push right now for, you know, V1.6 or 2.0 or whatever, which I cannot wait for. I'm very excited. I've got some ideas, but we'll see what actually makes the cut. You know, it's a balance of protocol and product work, helping out with newer versions of Seadrop, which I only tangentially helped out with, but that one's integrated in Seaport. So helping with the contract offer pattern. Sometimes it means getting nerd sniped and working on something that's not really what's on my task list, according to RPM. But, you know, I think it still works out right. I've been working on this hacked user-defined value type library that's nowhere near done, but I'm very excited about it in terms <laughs> of call data compression and stuff. Definitely uh, a must to not limit yourself to the one job. I mean, unless it's your startup, right? You seem very interested in, in Seaport, and I, I assume you're just like a salaried employee, right? What makes you so passionate about it versus, you know, okay, it's just another job? It's fun to work on these problems. Like I said, it's a very niche, esoteric problem set. The problems are just convoluted enough where I think I'm actually kind of good at solving them. And Seaport's really exciting because it's both on-chain and off-chain. I think, you know, some protocols are very, they're hardline. The protocol should be entirely on-chain. Some are entirely off-chain. But the fact that Seaport, you know, you can validate an order on-chain. That's how, like, party bid works. Party does product when you do, like, a party bid to bid on an NFT. It places the order on-chain, and then our systems pick it up, or, like, a searcher can pick it up on-chain. But then we also have this off-chain order book, which right now is centralized behind OpenSea or Reservoir API gated. But, you know, if we build out Seaport Gossip or when we do or when someone does, the decentralized aspect of this order book is really cool because then it's permissionless to post an order. It's free to post an order as long as you're running or connected to a node. And that's really cool. It's this, you know, new protocol on top of, you know, to an EBM-based l1 or l2 protocol and it's just so powerful in terms of what it can do and we've got ideas i've got ideas about how to make it more powerful in terms of how you can fulfill things seaport apps are very exciting to me i think in terms of nfts with utility or nfts that can do things you know seaport does a lot more than nfts you know just throwing that out there it can do erc20 to erc20 swaps 
or any combination like seaport deals we just launched where you know you can trade two pudgy penguins for a mutant ape or whatever or like a pudgy penguin and some eth for some token and like that's just built into seaport from the ground up that's the level of granularity you can have with this token settlement and then you can build things on top of it you can have nfts be their own market makers like they can be their own liquidity pools as a contract offer which is still sort of on the low level of why is this interesting question mark but i think the next wave of nfts won't be collectibles per se i think they'll have more uses i think they'll be more dynamic and i think seaports a really great platform to start building those things because you get this very secure very optimized trustless settlement layer for whatever your application is that's very promising to me in the grand scheme of things nfts will definitely be more important like tickets or something like that i'm sure that will all come into fruition maybe on like zk I wonder if you would ever do any like ports over to different chains. I think we're deployed on one of the ZK chains. I forget which one. Is it ZK Sync? One of them, but it's, you know, EVM compatible or EVM equivalent in quotes. I don't, I don't know if we're deployed to that one, but we're deployed pretty much everywhere. Every once in a while, Zero Age will tweet out the docs to do it and give that elusive Zero Age follow <laughs> if you do it. Yeah, I, the future of C, uh, of OpenSea is going to be very interesting, especially with these apps. People are building on top of them. Yeah, I think it's going to be quite interesting because from what I understood, OpenSea was always just NFTs, but now there's the aspect of ELC20s as well. And as you, as you mentioned before, it's really just an intention platform now rather than NFTs. So it's going to be definitely interesting to see how it all evolves, especially when ZK starts rolling out and, you know, NFTs become even more prevalent because now you have private data NFTs, which can be a whole lot more, all right? Like medical history, et cetera. So I think that's when all the NFTs will really shine. I think this has been quite an interesting call and I'm very grateful for you to, you know, spend the time with me, finally getting to meet you as well. Of course. It's an honor. This has been fun. It has been fun, yeah. And it's in the books now, so you can come back to it once you launch and be like, yo, I told you, <laughs> it was going to be good. Amazing. Posterity. Exactly, yeah. And for anyone listening, if you would like to jump on the podcast or would like to suggest someone to come on, just DM me at ScrapingBits on Twitter, or you can email me at ScrapingBits at gmail.com. Otherwise, thank you so much, Emo slash James <laughs> for coming on. I hope the audience will listen to a few more episodes because I'm sure if they enjoyed this, they'll enjoy a whole lot more. So yeah, thank you so much for jumping in and take care. Amazing. Thank you for having me.